Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 77, Red Runs the Green Valley. The Battle of Valverde, February 20th to 21st, 1862. Today's episode follows up from the events of Episode 63, where we covered the creation of so-called Confederate Arizona and the absurdities of the Battle of Mesilla. To very briefly recap, in the middle of 1861, a Texas Confederate officer named John Baylor exceeded his orders by invading the New Mexico Territory. He should have, by the intention of Richmond authorities, stopped his advance at El Paso. But Baylor took the opportunity to roll up into the town of Mesilla in New Mexico. There, he won a hilariously lopsided victory against a superior Union force. Unfortunately for the United States, the commander of the advance guard there was the utterly incompetent Major Isaac Lind. After the victory, John Baylor officially declared the formation of Confederate Arizona. On paper, this new territory wrestled the southern third of the entire American territory of New Mexico, including everything south of Socorro. But there were obvious problems with this notion, starting with the fact that the Confederacy had no power whatsoever outside of Baylor's outpost at Mesilla. The Union, however, controlled Fort Craig near Socorro and all points north of it, including the key towns of Santa Fe, Taos, and Las Vegas. If the Union got their wheels into motion, they could easily roll over Baylor's position at Mesilla. And that was arguably the simple part. While we won't cover much of it today, keep in mind that at this time, New Mexico held many clashing cultures. Multiple American Indian or Native American tribes who fought one another, New Mexicans with Spanish ancestry, and now Anglo-Americans. Things were just a bit tense, and no one truly controlled this vast and untamed landscape. Here all men alike bowed to nature. Far to the east in the urbane, genteel environments of Richmond, Jefferson Davis had hesitated to advance into New Mexico over that exact concern. Long supply lines, military opposition, and a harsh environment. But he was principally waiting on the recruitment of a new force to take war into the territory, and he cheerfully supported Baylor once the move succeeded. In fact, Jefferson Davis very much wanted to claim land, even dreaming of tearing away half of California from the United States in a hypothetical post-war settlement. Yet Davis needed an army to do this, and every soldier he could lay his hands on kept themselves busy in Virginia and Tennessee. He needed someone experienced in that territory to recruit a new army, and the key figure in that role was that an inveterate confederate named Henry H. Sibley. Now, Sibley was about as different as could be from John Baylor. Baylor had made his name as an ill-disciplined, if effective, warrior in the saddle as one of the Texas Rangers. Brash and racist, and yet an effective and volatile orator, Baylor made a distinct impact in building up support for secession in north-central Texas. Henry Sibley, by contrast, earned a reputation as a military professional. Born in Louisiana in 1816, Sibley would live with his uncle in Missouri after the death of his father. He came from well-educated stock. His father was a doctor, and his uncle founded Lindenwood College in 1832. However, rather than attend the college, young Henry Sibley attended West Point, where he graduated in the class of 1838, ranked 31 of 45. As always, 
Remember that graduating at all meant the cadet survived the culling of half or more of the entire class. Stupid boys and useless men did not often graduate West Point, though at times strong drink ruined graduates. For reference, Sibley's classmates in that year included notables on the Confederate side, such as Generals Beauregard and Hardy, and on the Union as General Irvin McDowell. Following his formal entrance into the officer corps, Sibley went on to have a strong career, from the Seminole War to Mexico. He served on frontier garrisons staring down tribes, and on the other hand in a military campaign to stare down the Mormons. But he became most notable for creating useful everyday tools for soldiers on the frontier, tools that would become commonplace during the Civil War. Sibley invented two items in particular, which the army would make extensive use of. The first was the Sibley tent. Now exactly where Sibley came up with the notion is somewhat unclear. Although obviously inspired by the conical tents used all very often by tribes out on the plains, of a type frequently called a teepee after the Lakota word, the specific local inspiration for Sibley's version remains unknown. However, Sibley designed it in a manner well-suited for the army and capable of being manufactured en masse by an industrial society. His version included manufactured and interchangeable components. It could fit 12 men comfortably, worked in all weather and environments, and those men could assemble it without any ropes or any extra tools in a few minutes. The Sibley tent proved so useful that the army formally adopted it and allotted $5 per tent to Sibley for the rights. However, Sibley would never see any money, because by the time the army began to manufacture the tents, he had already gone south. Otherwise, he would have made over a million dollars during the war, given that the army ordered more than 40,000 of the tents. The other item he invented was the conical Sibley stove, less well known but still popular and useful enough to remain in service for the next 80 years. Regardless, when the war came, Sibley quickly sided with the Confederacy. But having spent much time on the frontiers, he thought his experience might be more useful in that arena rather than fighting in Virginia or in Tennessee. Jefferson Davis agreed with the notion and gave Sibley license to recruit a force in central Texas. This took time, more or less the latter half of 1861, and Sibley, quickly promoted to Brigadier General, wanted recruitment who promised to bring their own horses. Sibley believed that a horse-born host could rapidly move around and overrun isolated Union posts, essentially giving him outsized strategic power. Since the desert and lack of supplies limited most armies to a few thousand men anyway, he intended to bring only mounted infantry and horse-drawn batteries of artillery. As far as it went, this was no foolish plan. The United States' base of power lay in the east and had no analog to nearby Texas from which they could easily raise soldiers and obtain horses, at least none that Sibley took note of. Come January of 1862, Sibley's forces slowly assembled near Messia. Because it will become very important in the future, we should pause to note that they did not travel as a united group, but rather as smaller units. This was simply a matter of necessity. Water sources in western New Mexico are very scarce. A large body will quickly exhaust the available supplies, and horses in particular need lots of water. Of course, the soldiers could always travel along the Rio Grande, which removes the water supply problem but adds many miles to the overall trip. Regardless, Sibley arrived, gathered up his recruits along with some of the men who had previously accompanied John Baylor to Messiah. In early February, 
Sibley set out from his advance post north of Messiah to confront the Union. Sibley's force included three strong regiments of mounted riflemen, a separate battalion of the name, plus several batteries of artillery and a few other scattered units. It was, in point of fact, a fairly sizable force for operations in a sparsely inhabited desert. Although somewhat deficient and irregular in the quality and type of its equipment, the great mobility of this mounted and force with its high morale might well carry the day. As a side note, Sibley dispatched a company of horsemen out to remote Tucson. At the time, it had fewer than a thousand inhabitants and still held the honor of the largest settlement in the western part of the New Mexico Territory. Though some Confederate sympathizers cheered the new arrivals, the outpost would accomplish little. In the end, they did it withdraw, having accomplished nothing, actually. Well over 200 miles of desert separated Tucson and Mesilla. Although hypothetically valuable in terms of long-term strategy, it did absolutely nothing for the Confederate offensive and served only to diminish Sibley's very limited manpower. One outpost that meant a great deal, however, was Fort Craig. Colonel Edward Canby, stationed at Fort Craig and the senior Union commander in New Mexico, intended very much to see to it that the Confederate advance halted on his doorstep. Canby was the officer who ordered Major Isaac Lind to occupy the fort near Mesilla in order to block the Confederate advance in 1861. And when Lind failed in spectacular fashion, it placed Canby in a difficult position. Canby, for his part, made certain that Lind was expelled from the service. With armies in the east taking every available soldier, the government could spare very little for far-off New Mexico. But Canby recruited loyal volunteer regiments, and the recruiting went pretty well. However, Colonel Canby had little intention of wrestling with the Confederates in a pitched battle if he could avoid it. From his perspective, they were dangerous, but also at the end of their logistical tether. That meant he could wear them down through attrition and lack of supplies in the hard desert. Besides, the Confederates would have to advance against Fort Craig, or risk leaving their own supply lines behind, and that gave Canby a big advantage. Fort Craig itself wasn't anything that special, hardly more than some sturdy buildings and a wall atop a bluff near the Rio Grande. But that alone made it a surprisingly valuable point. Sibley could not call upon very much artillery hardly enough to reduce the defenses. The fort lay close enough to the river that no one could feasibly cut the defenders off from the water. But Canby had another advantage. Uh, he had many more men defending than Sibley had to attack with. True, most of these were raw recruits, untried in combat. But that doubled the value of a strong defense. They provided organization and courage to green soldiers. Sibley's men though endowed with aggression and high morale, did not have any greater military discipline. To add to their woes and the advantage of the Union in this point, the desert had entered a particularly dry spell. This limited the ability of the Confederates to resupply more than the environment normally would. So the Confederates could neither besiege the fort at length, nor could they realistically drive out the defenders. Furthermore, while the soldiers might not perform like regular infantrymen, at least the leadership seemed reliable enough. Kit Carson himself led one of the volunteer regiments, and Carson alone was worth a thousand men in battle. Though not trained in the formal army style, Kit Carson had spent decades on the frontier, and probably had more experience in battle than any other man in Canby's force, Canby himself excluded. Now, 
he would later earn a reputation during the Civil War as being more of a bookish administrator, lacking in aggression. And yet, Colonel Canby had fought in the Second Seminole War and in Mexico, where he earned three brevet promotions, a rare honor even in that conflict. After the Mexican-American War, he took up a series of postings, mostly the same garrison duty that irritated many officers. Canby, though similarly annoyed, stayed in the service, which actually brings us to an ironic point. Canby had commanded this very department in 1861, and Sibley had been one of his top officers. In fact, the two had years of history together. Canby had written the recommendation to the War Department encouraging the service to adopt Sibley's new tent design. Yet, that friendship lay in the past now. Now they would command opposing forces locked in battle. By February 13th, Sibley and his army of New Mexico got close enough, hypothetically, to strike at Fort Craig. But knowing the strength of the position, and likely unsure of the Union numbers, Sibley wisely delayed rather than attempt an all-out attack. He finally decided to attempt a stratagem rather than blindly strike. On the 16th, Confederate riders darted in close enough to the fort to attract attention, and then immediately retreated. Sibley was trying to lure the defenders out and have a fight on open ground. But Colonel Canby declined to take the bait. He essentially saw no reason to fight on ground of his opponent's choosing. And once Sibley saw no results from this approach, on February 19th, he decided to simply go around. Crossing the Rio Grande, he began to advance up the east bank. But Colonel Canby foresaw this move, and posted some defenders to warn him. In the afternoon, these men spotted Sibley's march. Colonel Canby could not ignore this, so he marched a parallel route, hoping to prevent Sibley from recrossing and getting back onto the main road. General Sibley needed to do this, either to march north or risk an assault against Fort Craig. Canby, therefore, wanted to prevent Sibley from finding a fort, and likely guessed that Sibley would aim for Valverde Fort. So the day passed and the two armies settled down to rest. In the gloom of night, however, some Union irregulars led by Captain James Graydon decided to play a little prank on the Confederates. Being wartime, this prank involved explosives. Graydon's men were on the east bank of the river, near to the Confederate position, and amused themselves by strapping boxes of howitzer shells to two old mules. They then tried to spur the mules to run towards the Confederate ranks. The mules, however, wanted to go back to their owners and probably turned around, spurring the Union men to skedaddle. Fortunately for Canby soldiers, and very unfortunately for the mules, the fuses burned down before the old pack animals could return home. However, the explosions did some good for the U.S. Army, as the ear-splitting kaboom frightened the small herd of cattle Sibley's men brought along as meat on the hoof. They stampeded off into the night, and some wound up captured by Canby's forces. Early the next morning, February 21st, an advance guard departed Sibley's camp, whooping and hollering as they rode towards Valverde Ford, where they began a lively skirmish with Union men posted. Quickly, the two armies mobilized and converged towards the battlefield, soldiers falling into line of battle. On paper, the Union had a distinct advantage in terms of numbers and equipment, plus they held the fort and could force the Confederates to attack at a disadvantage. Yet the Confederates had their own advantages. Their large mounted force added weight and mobility. But in addition, 
The mostly Texan force had a great deal of martial pride and high morale, not to mention an obvious contempt for their enemies. Second, they hadn't necessarily spent the night kept away from the river, so they were hot and thirsty and wanted a cool drink very badly, which would give them some additional motivation. And third, but most important of all, they didn't have General Sibley today. Almost immediately upon the start of the battle, Henry Hopkins Sibley declared he was ill and spent the entire battle hanging in the rear, turning the command over to Colonel Green of the 5th Texas Mounted Rifles. Green, though not a West Point trained officer, had many years of experience in the West and was accounted as a brave, energetic, and thoroughly capable fighter. He was as good a choice as any. There is, however, the question of why Sibley did this. Several men accused Sibley of drunkenness, asserting that was the reason for his failure to lead. There is some evidence for and against this conclusion. Sibley did have a serious problem with alcohol, although he was hardly alone in that. He probably had appeared intoxicated on more than one occasion in the weeks preceding the campaign. It's worth noting, however, that the rank-and-file soldiers more or less always asserted that any unclear ailment on the part of an officer came down to drink. For example, officers rode an absurd number of miles during the war years. Just by the law of averages, sooner or later they were all going to take a tumble at some point. Many sustained some kind of injury, like a broken wrist or ribs in the process. Soldiers then inevitably gossiped that the officer must really have been drunk, unless the officer involved was exceptionally straight-laced. On this particular occasion, Sibley may have been drunk or hungover, but we have no reliable evidence. Later on during the day, Sibley did provide useful orders. The history in this case is simply unclear and somewhat clouded by the ultimate end of the campaign. It is, however, at least no less likely that Sibley had some manner of misgiving about fighting an old comrade in arms and killing fellow Americans. Besides, Better men than he also felt a terrible nervous pressure when faced with the awful responsibility of command. Regardless, as the battle began, the Union held only the west bank of the river. Here they were able to lay down fire over Velverde Ford. The Confederates, principally armed with shorter-range muskets or even shotguns, could deal no effective damage in return. Union artillery kept up a hot fire and prevented the Texans from assembling to do much of anything except to take cover behind the sandy roll of landscape just away from the river. Colonel Camby slowly assembled his entire force, less a detachment to hold Fort Craig against a surprise attack, and marched as rapidly as possible towards the field as morning gave way to noon. In the meantime, Dodd's Independence, one of the volunteer units out of Colorado, led the advance across the river. The Confederates kept up fire as the Union forces came on. Every man with a modern rifle ordered to target the officers, at least in theory. But Dodd did not slacken his own attack and sent hundreds of balls down range in return, slowly picking off any Texan who dared to leave the cover in order to aim. Now, in response, Colonel Green brought up a detachment of lancers. Those were literal lancers, as in soldiers on horseback armed with spears instead of guns. This was a very old and respectable form of fighting. Spanish colonies from Argentina to Mexico had long traditions of fine horsemanship inherited from Spain, and even in the colonial wars, uh, their lancers had done fine work. The Texans learned these skills from the Spanish or Mexicans, really, much as they had learned the trade of the cowboy or vaquero. 
Yet the era of firearms effectively ended the use of lancers in modern war, and the Texans were about to learn exactly why that was. Now Dodd's independents were a relatively small band of irregular soldiers. Yet Theodore Dodd, educated at West Point, saw the lancers forming, and immediately counterformed his own men into the traditional hollow square formation used to fend off cavalry. This was doubly impressive because, well, frankly, the militia had absolutely no experience in this kind of thing. Now the lancers charged boldly, and then they went down in crushing defeat in two volleys. After those two volleys, which basically unhorsed the entire lancer force, the charging cavalry boat broke confusion, as the Union boys countercharged and gave them the bayonet. The few surviving lancers fell back and could do no more. Now Dot, however, could take a little cheer from this because his countercharge had brought him within range of the Texans armed with, well, less effective guns. And now those shotguns and muskets began to exact a higher toll on his relatively small and isolated force. Dodd fell back under cover of the artillery. But this was fine, because Canby was now coming up with his full force. He surveyed the situation, and immediately noted that the high ground of Mesa de la Contadera lay wide open. This was on the south end of the battlefield, that is, the Union right and Confederate left. Now, seeing the opportunity, he decided that he wanted Kit Carson to go with two guns and occupy the heights. Once that was done, they would be able to bombard and essentially fire down the line of the into the rear of the Confederate position. This flanking fire would almost certainly win the battle. Now, Carson, who had taken up a post near the center of the Union line, began his move immediately and he easily brushed aside the few Confederates who tried to bar his path. However, in that short while, Carson's departure removed some of the infantry cover for McRae's forward battery, which was up there fighting alongside Dodd's independence. Mostly, this was on the Union left side and the Confederate right. It's the north end of the battlefield. Just behind them was the River and Valverde Ford. Now, in general, artillery and infantry worked together to lock down an area of the battlefield. Artillery packed immense firepower into a short space, and they could disrupt opposing infantry, but they usually needed friendly infantry to keep the enemy from developing a charge and just overrunning the guns. Unfortunately for the Union, that day, Colonel Green was in control of the Confederate position. Green immediately noticed when Carson's men moved out of position near the Union Center. Few other men would have taken the chances Green took, because he could also see the rows of Union soldiers advancing forward. Colonel Canby had reserves. Green did not. But Green also probably realized this was his only real chance. Green ordered his entire right wing to charge, a full third of the Confederate force in one mass movement, 750 men. At around three in the afternoon, the battle would be decided one way or the other with this charge. When the gunners of McRae's battery first noticed the Texans emerging into the open, they probably thought themselves fortunate. Now they could blast those rabs instead of attempting to drop shells behind cover. But then that charge began, and the artillery desperately opened up with every shell they could send down range. The Texans wavered, but reformed and kept moving even as men fell dead or wounded about them. At the crucial moment, however, some of the militia and even the regulars panicked and ran. 
they were outnumbered right on the spot. Yet with McRae's battery and the addition of fresh troops immediately nearby, the soldiers absolutely should have been able to hold their position. In situations later in the war, troops successfully fought off similar attacks. Indeed, the Texans were tired, thirsty, and had limited supplies. They could not sustain a fight. But what should happen does not always matter in war. In reality, the troops defending McRae's battery did break, and they did run. And soon enough, the gunners were fighting for their lives, with uh, mostly Dodd's independents attempting to defend them. The Confederates swarmed over. McRae himself took two bullet wounds before a third ended his life. Another gunner screamed, victory or death, before shooting his pistol into an ammunition chest and taking several Confederates with him. Soon enough, the Confederates captured the six guns, turned them around, and fired them at the retreating Union forces, although at least two had been spiked and permanently put out of commission. In fact, the situation for Canby again should not have been desperate. The problem lay in the fact that fleeing troops spread panic and fear, route leading to further route. And that's what happened at Valverde. Colonel Canby and Kit Carson combined couldn't cajole cowed comrades. Instead, a disgusted Canby led his men back across the fort and began a countermarch to the safety of the fort, where at least he could control them. But while frustrated, Canby was only beaten and not broken. As the daylight waned, he dispatched a soldier under flag of truce to request a ceasefire in order to recover the dead and wounded from the battlefield. Sibley, taking control of the Confederate force as the fighting ended, took stock of the situation. Although he previously planned to launch a late attack, he paused this plan. Canby still had a sizable force in the field, and Sibley also had many dead and wounded to deal with. With night coming on fast, the probability of doing any real damage remained low, and the risk of trying to launch such an attack across the ford high. So General Sibley accepted a truce. Thus ended the Battle of Valverde. The direct casualties of the battle were trivial in the larger war, but hardly laughable in the context of the Western campaigns. The Confederates brought only 2,500 men to the fight and lost 80 killed and 150 wounded. In one skirmish of an offensive campaign, they had lost nearly 10% of their fighting force. For Colonel Canby, the losses were numerically a bit higher, but proportionally less. He had 3,800 men and suffered a similar loss of 80 killed and 160 wounded. Note, however, that the Union counts tended to be more accurate generally, and Confederate numbers often just disregarded minor injuries. Now, Canby also lost 30 or so men captured or missing in battle, but also a couple hundred who deserted after the battle. This arguably strengthened his force overall. He still had a strong numerical edge, but the flight of a few faint-hearted souls would arguably strengthen morale. In any event, the strategic situation was not entirely good for General Sibley, even though he had technically just won. Canby retained the defensive fortifications of Fort Craig. He could continue to block the road. Sibley lacked the force to reduce this position. Worse yet, however, he could not afford to sit tight. The situation had not changed there, for his supplies were running out. Finally, while the battle exacted a nasty toll in human lives, Sibley also lost around half his horses. The mounted infantry would be largely dismounted from here on out. Sibley did capture the cannon of McRae's battery, although exactly how useful they would be remained unclear. And that was about it. General Sibley now had to look at his options, and the desert landscape limited him to only two. 
First, he could retreat back to Messiah. But doing so would essentially close the campaign in assured failure. Or he could continue his line of advance onto Santa Fe. Doing so would be the only way to continue his momentum, not to mention replenish his supplies. But that would leave a strong Union force in the rear. Sibley would have to hope that he could cut off Canby and wedge him out. Now, Colonel Canby, for his part, knew something that Sibley did not. The Union loyal soldiers in the territory were not only placed at Fort Craig. Not only did the Union still hold Fort Union, key to controlling the Santa Fe Trail, but a sizable band of reinforcements was already inbound from Colorado. These reinforcements included not only volunteer militia from Colorado, but elements of the veteran U.S. Cavalry regiments. While Canby's supply lines might be cut, Sibley was walking into a trap. But that is a story for another day. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.